If you turn in your Bible, if you don't have one, there's one in the seat in front of you. Uh, You can turn to the Gospel of John. We're going to be reading from uh, John chapter 11 and uh, and spending just a, a bit of time in this passage considering what Jesus says about himself, that he is the resurrection. So uh, John chapter 11, we'll start in verse 17. This is what the scriptures say. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Let's pray as we turn to the word. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather and to worship your son who gave his life that your wrath might be appeased. He gave himself willingly, not because you were angry beyond repair, but because you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, before time, resolved to solve the problem of sin this way. And so we thank you that your Son laid down his life that our sins might be forgiven. And that you raised him from the dead, that we who put our faith and trust in him, might be connected to his life. That we might have life because of his resurrected life, a life that will never leave. And so, Father, as we hear from your word this morning, we pray that you would speak to us in whatever 
place we find ourselves in life, whether we are just beginning to, to hear words about you, whether we have been in church for years and need a word of encouragement, whether we are struggling with some grief or difficulty or physical illness or pain or struggle, may we take comfort and joy in the power of the resurrection. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the sacrifice of your life, but we thank you for your resurrection. And we thank you for teaching us that you are the resurrection and the life. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Uh, it is important to remember that... Oh, is that for me? Um, let me just find a place to hide this. It's important, starting over, uh, to remember that, that Easter or the Resurrection Sunday, as some call it, is not just a, um, a holiday that rolls around randomly in the year, but that this is something that is based on the historical event of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the church sets aside this Sunday to celebrate that event. But that doesn't mean that this is just an arbitrary holiday. It, it comes out of the history of salvation and redemption. Here's what's important to remember about, that, about this, that this is not just a... a cultural event where we say let's celebrate the coming of spring right easter the resurrection enters into the biblical storyline in the midst of intense pain and suffering and i don't just mean the the pain and suffering of jesus when we look at this passage in the gospel of john we find that martha and mary Two women who were not married lost their brother, and this would have, in, in their time, would have destroyed and devastated them economically. So in the middle of an incredible amount of pain and suffering, Jesus arrives and says to them, your brother will rise again. Now, the Jews believed that there would be a resurrection at the last day, and so perhaps there is a, a sighing if you lost someone and you've mourned them, maybe somebody has said to you, they've gone to be in a better place, and you say, yes, thank you, but it doesn't bring the comfort that you desire at that time, or that they intend, right? Easter, the resurrection, begins in the Gospel of John with this moment when Jesus says, you're missing the point to her in verse 25. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Not just that he will rise one day, but do you believe that those who believe in me will experience this, this resurrection life, new life, a life that never ends? In the Gospel of John, we're taught that those who believe in Jesus go from this life to the next life with no uh, interruption, that there isn't some long period of, of sleep waiting to be raised from the dead and then judged and then enter into eternity, but that we close our eyes in this place and open them in the next place to life. Do you believe that, Martha? And she says, yes. And so we're told that Jesus went and 
demanded that the stone be moved and raised Lazarus from the dead as proof that resurrection would come, that resurrection could happen, that this was not just uh, some promise that we wait for and wait for and wait for, but that he gives evidence and proof. And at that time, it's interesting, not, not a lot of people recognize in this, this in the story because a lot of times the movies just move on. Or, or when, we, when we hear a sermon, we, we hear this passage and, and it's, it's let that man go, right? He comes out of the tomb and we forget that John, 40, John 11 verse 45 teaches that, that this moment, the resurrection of Jesus, sets the plan in motion. It sets the rest of the plot in motion. Look at what John eleven forty five 45 says. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus has done. There's always a tattler, right? There's always someone who runs and tells and is like, Jesus did something bad, right? You know, why would anybody would imagine that this was bad? Not really sure, but the Pharisees didn't like Jesus, and they were in charge of, of the, the, the people, and, and they didn't like what Jesus was teaching and how he was confronting their religious hypocrisy. But here's what happens in verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not only for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Do you see that? The the resurrection enters into our own story of personal pain and difficulty and loss. Resurrection is what we're promised when we consider the end of our own life and our fear of death. Jesus giving evidence to the people that he can raise from the dead sets in motion the events that lead to him being killed. That's what John eleven forty five to 53 says. Bringing resurrection to the people, evidence of it, leads Jesus to the cross. He chose this. He knew that this would happen. The cross, though, is not a tragedy in the narrative of Jesus' life. It is his plan. This is what he wanted because he wanted to bring life to us. His death brings forgiveness for sins because he is the, the sacrifice which God, who God sent to take Our sin upon himself, this this perfect man who never did anything wrong, who never sinned, who never deviated from a single command of God, took our sins upon himself and went to the cross. And his death brings forgiveness. But look at what Romans 5.10 says about his resurrected life. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. When Jesus left the tomb, 
on Resurrection Sunday 1, right? Easter 1, there were two reactions. The first was fear and worship. We see this in Matthew 28, 5 through 7. The angel said to the women who came to the tomb, Do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. They were filled with awe and fear and wonder. And they went and told what they had seen and heard. That's the first reaction. And one that we can have today. But we can do the flip side of that as well. Matthew 28, 11 describes the other reaction. While they were going, this is the women, as they're going to tell the other disciples that they had seen Jesus, uh, that they had not seen Jesus, actually, that he, they went to the tomb to see him, to see his body, and he was no longer there. As they were going, behold, some of the guards went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. The soldiers go and say, the body's gone, there was an earthquake, we ran away, we were scared, people are starting to say that he's raised from the dead, and they give money to the soldiers and they say, this is what the, the leadership of the people say, tell the people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. We'll talk a little bit more about that in just a minute. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. More money is what he's saying. Politics hasn't changed much in 2,000 years, has it? So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. We can react with fear and worship, reverential fear of God. Or we can react with, with fear that this story somehow must be repressed and silenced and that the implications of it in our own life need to be erased and, and bottled up. We have, we have a choice. Now perhaps the idea that a man was raised from the dead brings a difficulty to your mind. How is this, how is this possible? It is, I believe, very difficult, almost impossible, I would say, for the heart to worship what the mind cannot accept. And so let's just consider for a few moments the truthfulness of the resurrection. You might say science says it cannot be. It's a fact that dead people do not come back to life, ever. To which I would say this. That's not necessarily a scientific fact, okay? Scientific proof is, is drawn out by demonstrating that something is a fact by repeating that event in the presence of the person questioning it over and over and over, okay? It's restricted to something that can be repeated. Experimentation and observation, right? You might uh, say something like, this was the old commercial for ivory soap, right? Ivory soap floats. Everyone in America, unwrap your bar and throw it into a bucket of water, and if it floats, right, we've proven it. Scientific fact. Water burns when you, or not, wood burns when you put it in fire, right? 
water boils when you put it on fire. That's what I, I was mixing up my phrases there. Um, but this is a bad example of scientific proof. The year that I was born, can't prove that with science. Can't prove whether or not George Washington crossed the Delaware. Science can't prove whether you were here this morning or what you ate for breakfast. This is another type of proof that they call forensic proof or legal historical proof. And that is showing on the basis of the evidence that something is a fact beyond a reasonable doubt, a verdict based on the weight of the evidence, on oral testimony, what people said, on written testimony, what they wrote, and then on material testimony. What does the scene tell us? This is the testimony of those who knew and loved Jesus, that this man, when he was put in a tomb on his back, got back up. The evidence was provided in the moment that he was raised from the dead. You love God with your mind, as we said this morning, love him with your heart and soul and mind and strength. By using the mind and saying, is it possible that this is true? And sifting through the evidence so that our heart can rejoice in what our mind wants reject when we come to accept it. So, legal historical proof. Let's, let's ask this question. Who would die for a lie? The lives of the apostles are changed lives, and they're evidence of the conviction of their hearts. The apostles, I believe, can be trusted because they died for two facts. The first is this, that Jesus was the Son of God. That's what they believed. And second, they believed that he was raised from the dead. They believed this to the point where they were willing to suffer torment for their testimony and die for it. Peter was crucified, Andrew crucified, Matthew crucified, James crucified, Philip crucified, Simon crucified, Thaddeus, they shot him with arrows, Thomas, they speared, Bartholomew, they crucified, James, the brother of John, also crucified, John, legend has it, was boiled in oil but eventually died of old age, not while he was in the oil, but because they could not kill him, apparently. Their message was that, that Jesus was the Son of God and that he was raised from the dead. Now, many people have died for a lie, but they did not believe it was a lie, right? They thought it was the truth. People who, who make something up, who testify that Jesus is raised from the dead, who testify that they've seen him, and yet they haven't, and then they go to their death for it, what do they have to gain? Certainly not power, certainly not prestige, because they were persecuted for their belief that they held on to. Chuck Colson, uh, involved in the Watergate scandal, who went to prison for this and then became a believer years later, said this, that he watched some of the toughest men that he knew cave in the face of, of legal action and jail in just a matter of weeks. And yet the disciples maintain their testimony, some of them for over 60 years. That's powerful. They spoke as eyewitnesses of the life of Jesus. 1 John 1, 
Verse 1 says this, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, they heard Jesus with their, their, their ears, what we have seen with our eyes, what we've looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, speaking there of Jesus. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and, pro, and, and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life with which, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. There are many direct references in the New Testament to the fact that they, they knew him and they saw him and they heard him and then that they saw him raised from the dead. Second point on this idea of them being eyewitnesses, they themselves needed convincing of his resurrection. They needed convincing. They believed that he was dead. They, they say that they thought the women were crazy in the Gospels. They thought that the body had been stolen. Peter denied Jesus three times and deserted him. They all ran away from him when he was struck, and yet they, they include this in their testimony. Why? Because, because they're not trying to say we are the ultimate, most trustworthy witnesses. They're like, we didn't believe it either until we saw him. And if you look at the Gospels, there's no evidence as they wrote them that they are trying to line up their stories and make them straight. They just tell them. That's powerful. So we see them hiding in the upper room, hiding from the authorities, and then days later, out in public, strong, preaching, convinced of what they believe. The thought that they might be lying is inconsistent with the moral character that they demand in the New Testament. They face torture and death with a unified, unanimous message. And I believe their testimony substantiates the truth of what they wrote in the New Testament. So let's ask the question, uh, did it actually happen? Okay, some historical theories. This is, this is the, the truth. That the message that Jesus was raised from the dead has been proclaimed by Christians for 2,000 years. And no doubts or distractions or theories have ever deflated the church's testimony. The scriptures report that the tomb was empty and that he appeared to people who are alive who, who would have been able to refute the Gospels if that were possible. They would be able to say, no, we didn't see him. There were more than 500 in number, the New Testament says, who saw him. There are lots of names of people who saw him in the New Testament. And the fact of his resurrection during Passover, the most crowded time in Jerusalem each year, could not be maintained unless the tomb had been emptied. So uh, just, just three theories, and then we'll look at some implications of the resurrection, what it means to us today. The first is, is this, the wrong tomb theory. And that is that the women went to the wrong tomb. I don't think this is possibly true. The Bible says in Matthew 27, verse 61, that Mary was there when they buried him. Uh, that would mean that Mary went to the wrong tomb in the morning, and then that the disciples went to the wrong tomb. The Jewish authorities would not send guards to the wrong tomb. The guards were at the right tomb, right? There would have been garbage there or a fire from them being there all night. There would have been a Roman seal on the tomb. They would have, have known 
how could they have gone to the wrong tomb? Second, if they went to the wrong tomb, and that was, the, the theory was like, you know, uh, uh, you know that, that they had just gotten it wrong, producing Jesus' body invalidates the theory. Go to the right tomb and roll away the stone and, and, and put him in a wheelbarrow and wheel him through the city and tell everybody it's not true. Psychological evidence does not support the idea that anybody has ever suffered from mass hallucinations. 500 people suddenly saying, no, this doesn't happen. So the wrong tomb theory, not a, not a good option. Second is something they call the swoon theory. And that's this, that, that Jesus did not die, that he fainted on the, the, on the cross. Um, when, a, when, a, when a Jewish person dies, they embalm them, not, not internally, but externally. So they, they wrap the body in linen and about 100 pounds worth of spices. Um, when somebody goes into shock, when they faint, are you supposed to put them someplace cold or are you supposed to warm them up? Right? The, the swoon theory is that, is that Jesus, in the coolness of the tomb, revived. But anybody who knows anything about medicine says that when somebody is in shock, right, you are to, to put a blanket around them and warm them up, not stick them in, in cold storage. So the idea is that Jesus, still alive, revives in the cool of the tomb and then rolls away a two-ton stone that is moved into place with levers so that grave robbers can't get in and, and take whatever riches he might have been buried with. And so this, it is believed that this, this man with his nail-pierced hands and his sword-pierced, spear-pierced side uh, moved away a two-ton two stone and then traveled to convince the disciples that he was the risen Lord of the universe. I think that speaks for itself. The third option is that the body was stolen. That, that while the guards were asleep, the disciples came and stole the body. And you see this is the official theory advanced by the Jewish leadership, the leadership of, of the nation, the Sanhedrin. Uh, we see that in Matthew 28, verse 13. Now, there are some problems here, okay? First of all, the, the testimony about the disciples, their own testimony is that they were cowards, right? That, that when the guards came to get Jesus, right, we see, we see mild military action by Peter, right, as he cuts that guy's ear off, um, but, but then they all run away and are afraid to name Jesus because he has been taken and he is going to be put to death. So they're cowards. Is it possible then that they would mount an assault on a Roman guard, 12 to 16 trained Roman soldiers who had been placed at the tomb? If you break a Roman official seal, the penalty for that is crucifixion. The penalty for sleeping on guard duty is death. The penalty for fleeing your post on guard duty is death. There's no possibility that they overpowered the soldiers. There's no possibility that the soldiers went to sleep. The disciples' moral character goes against the possibility that they stole the body and hid it. Their teaching 
forbids it. Their death invalidates it because what do they have to gain? When we look at their lives, we see difficulty and persecution. There's no money. There's no real power propping up this idea that he's raised from the dead and starting a movement to transform the world into the the moral image of God brings to them only headaches and difficulty. And so they must have been convinced it was true. And then finally, again, the Jews and the Romans, if they had moved the body, they would have produced it to invalidate the disciples' claims. There's more that can be said regarding the historicity of the resurrection, but if the evidence is there, then the heart should embrace the implications of it. In my own life, I can recall going down into the basement of my parents' house with my Bible, and just, I had eliminated so many intellectual questions and, and satisfied them to my own knowledge that the, that the, true, that the, that the scriptures were, were true, that, that they were to be believed over other religious books, that, that God could have, in fact, created the world, and that evolutionary theory had massive holes in it. And I can remember thinking, as I sat down in the basement that night, I can remember thinking, if the resurrection is true, then everything must change. If he is risen, then there is meaning to that. So my encouragement to you today is to sort out that meaning. He is risen. What does it mean? First, it means that he is Lord. Romans 1, 1 through 4 say this. This is the testimony of Paul as he, as he opens the, the, the book that he wrote to the Romans. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called in as, an, as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. Now look at this. The gospel concerns Jesus the Son. Verse 4 says that he was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection means that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is Lord, Master, King. And that means that as a king, don't think constitutional monarch, right? Queen Elizabeth II, right? Her job is look fancy and let the British government do everything, right? So don't don't think that. Think constitutional, no, not constitutional, think reigning despot, right? King, like Louis XVI, who could do anything he wanted, like Pharaoh, king of Egypt, right? This is what the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. Therefore, and this is because of Jesus' humility, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. What name is that? We say sometimes that it's that the name is Jesus. I think the name is ruler over all, Lord, King. He bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That means that one day every name, every, every tongue, every being will acknowledge the lordship of Jesus. Some 
in shame because they, they had an opportunity to believe it and hear it and receive it in life and they refused. And others will sing it to their praise because they, they chose to worship and to repent of their sins and to honor him the way that they should in the proper time. He is risen, and that means that he is Lord. Second, what does it mean that he's risen? It means that we can be freed from sin's power and sin's penalty. The problem in the world is is human sin. I, I think that maybe 10 or 15 years ago, if we looked at the world right, pre-internet, maybe we could be convinced that the, that the hearts of, of people weren't wicked and full of aggression and, and spite and meanness and, 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 and just hatred. All you have to do is go to any article on the internet and read the comments, and you're convinced that a majority of the population is just straight out wretched, Right? There's a meanness that lives in all of us to some degree or another, even if many of us are trying to do well. That's a, that's a sickness that penetrates to our core that ruins us and ruins everything. And through the power of the Holy Spirit and by the resurrection of Jesus, God cures that in human beings. He doesn't make them perfect but he forgives their sins and then sets them on a path of growth in holiness and change as they depend on him. Look at what Romans 4.25 says. Jesus was delivered over, this is to the cross because of our transgressions. Our sins are punished on the cross, but he was raised because of our justification. God declares those who believe in the message of the cross. He declares them to be righteous in his sight. He connects them to the life of Jesus, this resurrected new life. And that is how we overcome sin's power and sin's penalty, by being united with him. Look at at Romans 6, 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer master over him. The resurrection means that that sin's power is broken and that we can have new life. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. What's being said here is that Jesus' resurrection means if it is a historical fact and we believe it is, it means that there is hope of life beyond the grave. If you look at the religions of the world and all of the moral theories that are out there, at the base of them is this idea. I've got a a bachelor's degree in religion and philosophy. So I say this with, with the educational authority of Kane University, granted upon me by in the year 2000. Um, it took me seven years to get that degree. Yeah. Um, all religions seek to please God in some way, to remove fear, to remove the, the human problem and to solve the problem of death. But this is what is unique about 
Christianity. Christianity says God serves humanity and saves them from their sin, that they might serve him in righteousness. God must work first. We cannot work to save ourselves. Jesus working on our behalf, he reconciles us to God, and that means that the fear of death can be taken away and that we can know that we have new life. Resurrection comes through the work of Jesus. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes through the Father but through me. Peter, who denied Jesus in in, in, in this horrible moment in his life and ran away and hid in fear, says this in his letter to the church, 1 Peter 1, verses 3-3. Through five, He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance, right? This is something that's, that's coming to you someday that you, that you get, a reward given to you. He has, has given us this inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled and will not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you. That means that if we want it, if we don't have it, if you can't say this morning, I know that I will see God when I die. If you can't say that, it is there for you, Peter says. Those who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is a living hope. It's not some vague possibility. I've, I've run into some Christians and in conversations where I've talked to them and they say, I hope that one day God will give me eternal life. And I say, I've got good news for you. The Bible says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the promise of the good news of the gospel. Not a vague possibility, but a firm expectation that it will be. Hope of life beyond the grave. Lastly, what does it mean that he's risen? It means that we can know that we will be spared from the coming wrath of God. Acts chapter 17, verse 30. Paul is is preaching to some people who've never heard the gospel before, and this is what he says. Therefore, God has overlooked the times of ignorance, but he's now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Repenting is acknowledging the sinfulness of our sins, acknowledging the rightness of God's holy standards, admitting our need of forgiveness, leaving behind our sins, hating them, and forsaking them. So he's commanded that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he's appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. God sent his representative, Jesus, who went to the cross and who died. And now God is proclaiming repentance and saying that one day this man, Jesus, will judge all men. And he proved it by raising him from the dead. The resurrection proves that judgment is coming, but the resurrection also proves that every word of Jesus' message is true. And that means that those who put their faith and trust in the good news 
that he took their sins upon himself, that they can be spared from the wrath of God. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 through 10. Speaking about the way that, the, that these people in the city of Thessalonica had changed their lives, Paul says, they themselves, this is people who saw their lives, report to us what kind of a reception we had with you, how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. That is good news. The good news of the gospel is this, Ezekiel 18.32. God says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. For those who are the declared enemies of God by our actions, this is great news. Great news that God is like, if you will just surrender, I will save you and the war will end. We take that offer when it's made to us, if we're wise. We see in John 11 that Jesus raised Lazarus, prompting the conspiracy of the leadership of Israel to kill him. That brought him to the cross, which was his conspiracy to raise those who believe in him from the dead. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, he will live. And so there are two reactions that we can have to this message this morning. One is reverential fear and worship. We can say, yes, that is true. I believe it and I receive it and I'm going to live in it. And it's easy. All we need to do is to say to God that we believe that it's true, that we accept the the responsibility for our sins which have divided us against him, that we leave them behind, that we forsake them, and that we receive his gracious offer of forgiveness through Jesus. The other reaction is fear and rejection. We can ignore it. We can suppress it. We can say no to the voice that speaks within that says that is true. And then one day we will pay the penalty for our rebellion. The good news is that we don't have to. So as we close this morning, what do you believe? I hope that you will not sneer and walk away and say, so what, the resurrection, having heard what it means, that we can be spared from the wrath of God, that there, we can know that there is hope beyond the grave, that, that we can know that there is a Lord and a king, and that we can know that there is power in the resurrection. So I ask that you would decide. Receive his mercy and grace. Do not reject him. Enthrone him as king of your life. It will never be the same if you do this. What will you do with Jesus today? Let's close in prayer. Father, Jesus said to us that he is the resurrection and the life. And we have considered your word and we pray now. If there's anyone here who, when they consider their heart, knows that they are separated from God. I pray that they would put their faith and trust in you. 
that they would own responsibility for their sins, that they would acknowledge your righteousness in judging sin, that they would receive your gracious offer of mercy, and then that they would know that they have received your forgiveness. I pray that they would let someone know about their decision. And Father, for those uh, who have believed, who have put their faith and trust in Christ, I pray they would know, again, with, with renewed encouragement that their sins are forgiven, that your Son is Lord and He is to be followed with joy. And we pray that, that our confidence would grow in the fact that we will not be separated from you, but we'll have your mercy and we'll have life beyond the grave. We thank you for this truth that he is risen. We believe he is risen indeed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.